Now, I'll give you another thing to keep you up at night if you're that sales manager. Of the 25% that you're winning, have you compared the quality and the value of that 25% that you won against the quality and the value of the 75% that you lost? I don't mean on a, on a total basis, but are you looking at it in terms of, well, I won 25% of my opportunities. It's okay, maybe it's above the industry average. But of those 25%, how many of them were ones you really, 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 really wanted? How many of them were the highest value? How many of them represented long-term growth opportunities? Or did you win a large number of the 25% on a purely transactional basis? You came in at the lowest price. Your timing was good. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Bob Wiesner. Bob's the managing partner at the Artemis Partnership, and he's the author of a new book titled Winning is Better, which I wholeheartedly subscribe to. In our conversation, Bob and I talk about a topic we don't often cover on this show, which is helping sellers with the type of sales that they are most afraid of, which are the RFP-based sales, like to governments or institutions with certain procurement requirements, as well as in the enterprise space, where large large deals almost always have a, an RFP element at the end of them. So Bob shares some of the tactics that he and his firm work with on their with their clients that enable their clients to regularly achieve win rates in excess of 60% on this type of selling, which is very impressive for on bid-based selling. We dig into why Bob believes that relationships remain the single most important factor in winning project-based bids. So just reiterate that relationships remain the single most important factor in winning project-based bids. We also talk about why achieving success in big deals today is no different than it was in what Bob calls the before times, before the pandemic, because it's always about how well you understand what the buyer really cares about what's most important to them, and how you, as a seller, can help them get that. So we'll get into this and much, much more, but before we get to Bob, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast, wherever you listen to it, and if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could leave us a review and give us some feedback about how we're doing. Really, really appreciate that. So let's jump into it. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy. I'm delighted to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. So, uh, Tell us a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about uh, your company, Artemis Partnerships. Well, I'll start with me, which is the uh, easiest and my favorite topic, my first of mm. the two favorite topics. Um, I am uh, a uh, advertising veteran, spent uh, 25 years um, in the advertising business in major agencies um, in New York. Um, mm -hmm. After that, uh, moved into the uh, consulting and training business, um, worked for uh, a company called Rogen Incorporated for uh, 11 years. Uh, then uh, went out on my own for my own company, uh, dealing in uh, sales presentation um, and leadership training. Uh, did that for five years, was recruited by one of my clients to come on board, one of the big four uh, consulting firms, uh, joined them, got recruited out of there by one of my <laughs> clients uh, to join them in a leadership capacity. Uh, and then about 10, 11 years ago, decided that um, I really liked working for myself better than I yeah. liked working, working for the man. So yes, um, yes. I got on my it's own and started, back. yeah, I started my own company. Um, I was a sole practitioner for uh, about eight of those years, um, as I had been prior. Um, but about two years ago, 
I connected with a former partner of mine from our Rojan days in the mid-90s, and we uh, decided that we we were offering very similar uh, solutions to our clients, Um, he in London, uh, me in uh, New York, uh, and thought that it would be to our benefit and to our client's benefit if we were to be scalable. So Mm -hmm. in 2019, we formed the Artemis Partnership. Um, We are now about uh, 20 people in the U.S. and about another 20 people um, in Europe and in Asia Pacific, um, focusing on helping our clients win more competitive bids. We help them win more new business. Um, And we, we love doing that. So 40 people is a far cry from being a sole practitioner. Yes, it is. Uh, I, I can remember a time, Andy, when I swore I would never be a boss again. Right. right. That was why. Well, that's why I asked the question because I've I've traveled that path myself. <laughs> well, yeah. then you understand what we're going through. But honestly, um, the way we're we're structured, um, we have a very very experienced people um, that work with us. Many of them were former clients of of, of ours. Um, they don't really need to be managed. Um, they don't. They don't need a boss. Um, they are very professional and very capable of what they do, um, and they are uh, like all of us. They are fully devoted to um, helping um, Artemis clients uh, be more successful. Um, it's actually a pleasure to work with them because we're all so like-minded in our approach to client benefit and client service. What and you focus on helping sales teams and sales organizations, sellers, with the type of sales that most are deathly afraid of, which is bid-based sales. Yeah, that's a, a, an <laughs> accurate way of putting it. Um, right. you, we, I mean, we, people, I mean, sellers in general, you say, oh, this one's got an RFP. They're like, oh, I even talking to them. I mean, it's like, uh, uh, blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, because <laughs> you can win them. Yeah, you know, we, we've come to the conclusion that there is a difference between selling and winning. And there are a lot of very capable salespeople and professionals, whether they're accountants or lawyers or management consultants or architects, who are pretty capable of selling as well. But when you get into the highest stakes, more complex, highly competitive uh, situations, um, right. then the, the, just being a good salesperson is not enough. It's enough to get you there. But going that extra, that last mile of actually winning that bid in that very competitive environment requires different approaches and different mindsets that, that a, a, a typical, if there's such a thing as a typical salesperson may not actually have. And Artemis comes in uh, to fill that gap for them, help them make that leap from selling to winning. Um, and our track record, which is a 75% win rate when we work with our clients in this fashion, uh, says that what we're doing is probably effective. Okay, we're going to dig into that because, so let's, let's talk, <laughs> I want to come back to this thing about the win rates first because, um, yeah, I you, you bring it up. I mean, there are a number of people that think, yeah, win rates, win rates, schmin rates, right? I mean, I could show you, I could send you articles from you know, investors and other people that sort of poo-poo win rates. I think they're, I think they're the main thing, the main metric that you want to measure. Um, what do you, I mean, like the whole industry segments, like in the SaaS business, that you know they go 
have a celebration if their win rate exceeds 20%. What do you say to companies like that? Well, if you're a baseball fan, 20% would be the Mendoza line. That's a, a <laughs> batting average of 200. Um, right. You know, there's what, what's kind of thrown salespeople off in this is, is the idea of quotas versus win rates. So I might hit my quota or exceed my quota and still have win rates in the 15 to 20% range. Right. Right. And it's easy enough to say that's fine, and I wouldn't argue necessarily with, with people, especially if you're making a lot of money. But think about, and, and this, is, this is something that not enough firms think about, think about the investment required to win 20% of the time. Think about um, oh, yeah. the, the hours you put into it. Think about the um, mental energy and emotion you put into it. Think about the, um, the money the travel costs, the investment in marketing materials, in attending conferences, in putting together proposals and presentation materials. Um, there are precious few companies that actually measure ROI on their, on their, their uh, pitches, on their competitive bids. And as a result, mm -hmm. I think they're win they are deceived by their win rates. Um, I would rather see a company bid less often, participate in fewer of these pursuits, mm -hmm. participate in the ones they do participate in with greater intensity and greater effort, and come up with win rates that are 50% or more. Um, and that is absolutely possible when, when you look at um, business development from an um, overall investment standpoint and not simply from trying to hit certain numbers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I'm just laughing to myself because I, I love what you're saying. And it's, it's what I talk about as well. Is it's like, I, I look back at my own career. I sold large complex communication systems, you know, denominating the millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars sometimes. And yeah, I had a win rate about 65%. And I, it's like when you're a company and they're saying, oh, this 25, let's say it's 25% being generous. That's good. It's, my first instinct is say, well, okay, what you're doing is you're training your salespeople. The most common behavior you're training them in is how to lose deals. And there are elements along the way that clearly are going to be consistent from a deal-to-deal -deal basis that, you're, that are failure, points of failure for you. And yet companies oftentimes in this, that sort of category just don't seem to care because you know, in aggregate they're, they're hitting the numbers. They're hitting their numbers. Um, they're perhaps not thinking about not just the fact that they're losing 80% of the time and awfully good at losing, apparently. Yeah, but, quite good. I mean, this is, we got a whole industry segment that pretty much thrives on that. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but, but what is the message that you're sending to those clients who see you as a loser? Exactly. Um, you know, how are they perceiving you? Are they perceiving you as a viable option? Are they perceiving you as a strong organization? Um, or are they just perceiving you as too expensive or, or um, not responsive? What's, what's interesting about organizations that have those 50 plus win rates is that even when they lose, they lose with an improved relationship at the end of it. They have put so much of their, their effort into developing trust and building mm -hmm. relationships that even if they come in second or they come in third, most of the time they have, cre they have set the 
groundwork. They've laid the foundation for further discussion. Right. I, one of my clients told me years ago that after they stop, after they stop hunting, they start farming. Um, mm-hmm. and that's that's what you're able to do when you are pursuing fewer of these high stakes opportunities with greater intensity, with greater effort. When you're all about hitting a quota um, and just getting out there, doing enough our proposals, having enough meetings so that eventually you, you, you hit a bogey, um, you're taking all the ones that you didn't hit and you're throwing them by the wayside. Um, at least that's the risk you're running. Uh, they may come back to you at some point because of your reputation as a company or because you know, they figure they can, they can put some pressure on you for price. Uh, come back to me next time with a cheaper proposal. But um, I would rather... Well, I don't think they come back. I mean, I, that's... Yeah. Because what, what, what the customer basically said is, you couldn't present me a compelling reason to consider you. I mean, it's... it's I think, you know, sellers, when they've got such low win rates, in the, but it's sort of, you know, to try and make it up on volume, is the sales efforts are so superficial by necessity, because they've got too many opportunities to work, right? They can't invest the requisite intensity into every deal at that point is, you know, the buyer's making a judgment. It's like, well, yeah, no, uh, you, you start wasting my time here. And the buyers can see a difference between organizations that approach them with effort and organizations that don't. Mm-hmm. Um, it, oh, it's sure. sometimes it's very tangible and, and sometimes it's just a gut feeling, but it's definitely perceivable. Um, and that is, um, makes all the difference from a, a trust and long-term, um, value proposition basis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so let's dig in a little bit further. So what are the keys to increasing win rates in general? I mean, I understand deals are different from size to size or, you know, industry, industry, and so on. But in general, what are sort of the things that you emphasize with your clients? Uh, first of all, we, we, we're very certain that um, big deals that eventually go to RFP are won or lost long before the RFP is actually issued. Exactly. Uh, we think that buyers, and, and this has become ex- exaggerated since the pandemic, we think that buyers place a much higher uh, value on trust, on relationships, um, and there's a much higher value on incumbency, perhaps, mm-hmm. in, in many right. professions than there was before. So if you want to increase your win rate, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to identify your targets, and not many of them, and you have to start the relationship building long before an RFP might be issued. Uh, by the time that RFP is issued, you want to be seen as one of the one, the top two choices for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might even want to help write the RFP. You might even be able to preempt the RFP in the best of all possible circumstances. Uh, yeah, but it's a commercial, it, a commercial deal. Yeah. 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 A um, government deal um, obviously wouldn't be the case, but even so right. um, you can still have a, a strong relationship um, and be seen as a, as a high quality option for them at the point where they're going to issue the RFP. So that's, that's mission number one from our standpoint is build that relationship, establish your, your trustworthiness, um, and establish your value proposition 
long before an RFP is issued. And Andy, I'll, I'll just say one more thing about it for your listeners. If you think that this is not so important and that, well, I got an RFP, I've never met these people before, but isn't it cool? I have a shot at it. They've invited me in. Just remember that um, if you don't have a strong relationship with that buyer, somebody else does. <laughs> Absolutely. And you've got to account for that. Exactly. I was just having this conversation with someone right before we started our recording with, with another guest on a, another episode I was recording is, is talking about this idea of relationships and sales. And this has become a word that's so fraught in sales these days because there's you know, a, a small but loud cadre of people saying, oh, relationships aren't important in sales. And, and, you know, and they only interpret relationship as sort of, hey, let's go out and play golf type <laughs> relationship you have with a customer, which is not the case. But I'm interested in your perspective on that. The nature of, of how a relationship is formed has definitely changed. Um, but the importance of the relationship is not. So the, the 19th hole isn't as important as it used to be, uh, not as easy to access as it used to be. Uh, the let's have a real cup of coffee isn't going to happen as much as it used to be. But buyers or decision makers are still interested in getting to know you if the process of building that relationship can bring something of value to them. Mm -hmm. We think that, that the strongest uh, sales and business development organizations are the ones that are um, client-centric throughout the, um, the business development process. You know, everybody on this, listening to his podcast, knows the Glengarry Glenn Ross and ABC right. always be closing. So the, we've bastardized that to call it ABCC, always be client-centric. Um, mm -hmm. If you enter a, uh, into a potential relationship with a buyer by offering something of value to them, insights, information, perspective, something that makes them better off professionally, they will take that meeting. They will listen to you. They will exchange information with you. They will engage in a dialogue with you. It doesn't require a cup of coffee or a drink or a lunch. It just requires the confidence that the buyer has that you're going to bring something that they can use um, and that you care about their well-being. Um, no magic to this, but it's just remarkable how many people don't do no, it. Oh, not right. I, exactly. What well, keeps you in business? Um, yeah, I would. I would say that one of the primary sources of value for a customer, a buyer that's overlooked, is understanding them they yeah, making them feel understood and making them feel heard understanding what their what the thing that's most important to them is right is and so often in sales these days is the way sellers are trained a little more scripted a little more robotic here are the questions we ask is they might be proficient at gaining knowledge but not at gaining understanding not understanding the context this has um been proven out in research that we've been doing over many years with my um, legacy companies, and then we've continued it um, with Artemis, uh, we think that there are, generally speaking, and this, this won't be a big surprise, Andy, to you or to your listeners, we think there are four components of 
decision-making that influence buyers to choose one competitor over another in these highly competitive situations. Mm-hmm. Okay. So those four would be the nature of the solution itself, the technical aspects of it, the product, sure. the pricing. Sure. Um, it would be what you just said. Do you understand me, my company, my, myself, what I, what we're looking to do? Um, mm-hmm. Chemistry. Do we get along? Do we like each other? Mm-hmm. Um, and politics, right? You right. Know, because every decision nowadays is a political decision. I don't mean Democrats and Republicans. I mean, how will this look to my bosses, to my shareholders, right. to, my, to my users? Um, right. What we find um, is that too many sales organizations don't reflect the right emphasis of these four, these four parts. Um, in, in both training their people in how to sell and then in practicing the, the craft of selling, they're putting way too much emphasis on the solution. Right. Being product experts, having the right features, being able to describe those features, having the right pricing, um, having the right sales materials. And, and that's important. It's not that it's not important, but our sure. research suggests that as a default, the, the, the weight apply to the solution is about 27 or 28% of the total decision. Um, now, again, we're talking about competitive pitches. So here I am mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, as a procurement specialist or as a buyer, I've got five proposals in front of me from five firms, any of which are going to be perfectly capable of providing me with a, a quality outcome. How do I pick between the two, between the five of them? Well, Certainly, they have to have a good solution at a right price, mm-hmm. but that's you know a quarter, no more than a third, of what that of what the ultimate decision is going to be based on. The rest of it is is you know maybe thirty two, thirty three percent of it is do you understand me? Mm-hmm. Maybe twenty five, twenty six percent of it is the chemistry that we've been mm-hmm. able to achieve, um, which is clearly challenging in the days of uh, virtual selling, but not right. impossible. Right. And then, you know, 15, 17, 18% is the politics involved. How will it look if I hire you? Um, How will you help me be successful and look good to my bosses? So successful um, competitive bids hinge on the ability of the selling organization to have a a suitable solution, but then to to really win on what we call the 72%. That's not the solution. Yeah, I mean, I was just listening to you thinking, okay, Simplicity's sake, basically by quarter, right? Twenty five percent for each of the four factors, roughly, mm-hmm. is yeah. And I, I'm certainly not surprised by that. It's is that yeah, the solution is twenty five percent, roughly, of the buyer's you know factor in, as a factor in the buyer's decision, and lots of intangibles <laughs> as the rest. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll challenge one word there, yeah, um, Andy, which is the word intangible. Well, that, that tends sure. to be, I mean, a lot of us think of it that way, and that tends to be an excuse in some cases. Well, it's an intangible. I can't control it. What am I going to do about and it? I don't, I don't mean that because I'm you know, a big subscriber to you know, Stephen M. R. Covey that you can quantify trust and so on. But so, yeah, excuse the sloppy yeah, yeah. choice. No, no, I'm, I'm, we're totally on the same page with yeah. that. Um, but once again, this is something that not enough selling organizations, I think, account for um, and are, are actually assertive in trying to establish. Yeah. I, I agree, and and again, there's there's even I said this this sort of cohort that will say, well, you know, trust, yeah, not really, 
you know, they think it's just about purely about the solution, right? You, you get, you understand, you help define the problem, provide a solution, you're going to win. And it's like, no, I mean, it's never been my experience. That's that, that's been the end all be all. Um, yeah, I spent a good chunk of my career selling, I said, these very large, expensive, complex systems for startups. You know, we had no brand name, no track record competing against, you know, billion dollar multinationals. We should, by any rational point of view, we should never have won. Yet we won a lot, both as, you know, commercial sales and also selling to the government. And that wasn't based on the fact the product was so superior. It was based on the other factors as well. Well, we want our clients to be hyper aware of those other factors. We want yep. them to uh, we want them to to build them into a strategic sales plan. Um, we want their their sellers and their subject matter experts who support the selling process mm-hmm. to be uh, very well equipped to um, to score in all three of those areas. Well, first to understand them, and right. then to to um, use their messaging. Um, and their uh, uh, relationship building skills to fully leverage them, um, but it, it takes it takes a, a really purposeful approach, um, and it's it, it takes a consistently applied approach. It takes perseverance and time and energy. It's why we use the word intensity mm-hmm. often. I like it. Um, that's what distinguishes um, an organization that that will have a fifty to sixty percent win rate from an organization that is, is happy with a 20 to 30% win rate. So let me ask about the, let's say a government scenario is where it's going to go to bid. And yeah, maybe you're a newer company or a company that hasn't, you know, sort of dealt much in, in a government type setting, whether it's, uh, you know, DOD or some other, how, how would you recommend they sort of start this process of, sort of identifying who they should talk to, how they should go about building these relationships that may not bear fruit for quite some time. Well, first they have to realize that it may not bear fruit for quite some time. <laughs> so you, you need a hefty dose of reality. Right. Now, um, in our experience, there is a difference between um, DOD-type work and civilian government work. Right. Um, we think it's inescapable, especially on the on the defense or or, or um, non-civilian side of government work, um, that you have to have sellers who come out of that world. Um, and any organization that is serious about selling into um, the DoD and different branches um, of federal government and and the like um, are going to already realize this. They need to to have somebody Ex-military. with that direct experience. Yeah. Um, in the absence of that, it's, it's very, very, very difficult to compete. Um, now on the civilian side of government work, it's much different. Um, and it's not a lot different than it is on the commercial side. Um, while there will be regulations and there will be, uh, restrictions on how you affect relationship building behaviors, mm-hmm. um, they are still, they're still human beings that you're selling to. Um, they still um, would rather work with people who understand them. They still would rather work with people that they like. Mm-hmm. Um, and God knows what the, pol- the politics are huge, obviously, maybe right. way more than 25%. They could be actual politics too. They are real politics. Yeah. Um, so 
an organization selling into into civilian government work um, should not approach it with a lot of with a great deal of difference than they would approach commercial work. Um, they still need to establish relationships um, and get to understand what the issues are. Um, we've talked to procurement professionals in both government and um, commercial sides, uh, and they say the same sort of things. They say that um, they're not, they're not, this is not DOD work. This is sure, civilian right. government work. They say they're not restricted from taking a meeting with a provider um, when that provider is, wants to bring to them insights mm-hmm. and understanding about the market or understanding about the, the technology or understanding about the business conditions. Um, they are uh, not opposed to um, considering those people as, uh, I wouldn't say, they wouldn't use the term favored providers, but they understand right. the, the, the differences between those firms that take that, take that step and others that don't. Mm-hmm. Um, now, they have to put it out for bid and they have to publicize it and they will get 30 to 50 to 60 uh, RFQ submissions. Um, and they have to sort through all of them. So you can't avoid that situation. But you're already going in as, the, as a provider with um, a very clear uh, value proposition and a very clear position with, uh, with the potential um, buyers. And that's going to make a, a difference. You know, we, we, um, you've um, undoubtedly, Andy, have had this situation. Um, when you're, you're um, dealing with some, publicly, some public bids, let's say you're a university that mm-hmm. wants to put up a new building and you're putting out to design and build firms, they have submissions, um, and you've got five finalists that come in for an interview at the end. Those interviews could be public. You could go on to the university website and you can stream it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can, in some cases, you can stream the discussion that the decision makers have amongst themselves. Now, this is a government-funded organization. It's a public university. Um, you'd expect it to be very objective. Um, you'd expect it to be very solution-oriented, factually-oriented. But when you listen to these guys um, debate amongst themselves, it's very subjective. Yeah. They are pushing really hard to get the other people to change their votes. They are humans. Yeah, and I, I think that when we when we are pitching, pursuing government-type work, um, we forget that. Well, I think we forget it on the commercial side, though, too. I mean, so, you know, you know, Gartner, you know, puts out the research every year about the sort of steady, this drumbeat of steadily increasing number of, of stakeholders involved in every decision. But, you know, there was a study done a few years ago by a professor at USC School of Business, Steve Martin, who talked about yeah, the the interpersonal dynamics within the stakeholder group—it's just as you described, right? So there are people who are more dominant personalities. There are politics at work. If you think that it's going to be a consensus at the end of the day, no, it's not going to be consensus, and it's not going to be objective, right? And so you need to understand who those—at least from the commercial side, and certainly on the government side—it sounds like as well—is who those dominant personalities are, right? Who is going to um, influence whom? Right. And what is going to be their hot buttons yep. that you have to um, either hit 
for your for your benefit, or you have to neutralize if you don't think that you would score that high in those areas. Yeah. Well, I, I like to sort of simplify it. Say, you know, you have to understand <laughs> what's most important and who is it most important to. Hmm. Hmm. Now we know that there's not a salesperson listening to this podcast who hasn't heard this somewhere along the line. Uh, my challenge to the audience is: What are you doing about it? How mm-hmm. important is it in your sales efforts? How important is it in your um, uh, when you plan a conversation? When you're about to hit the send button to, to to shoot out another case study, or to send a pricing list, or to send your sales materials, are you thinking about how the reader is going to react to it? Are you thinking about is this going to touch their hot buttons? And their hot button, it could be very different from what your hot button is. And it can be very different from the hot button of the person who you just hit the send button to a moment ago. Um, it, it takes time to do that. It takes effort to do that. And I'll go back to one of my first points, which is that's why you cannot pursue too many pieces of business at once. Because right. you need the time to get to understand what each of your buyers might be looking for and then to be, and then to be creative and effective in addressing it. Well, and that's... Again, back to an issue we talked about at the beginning, so often, especially in the software world, you know, the sales leader's recipe for success is, well, we need to have a you know, certain multiple of our monthly number in our pipeline. So it's always like 5X, right? The sort of the magic number, 5X pipeline coverage. And with 5X pipeline coverage, you're going to get a 20% win rate. Mm-hmm. It's like math that... So many sales leaders just haven't really sort of figured out <laughs> is that your win rate will be the reciprocal of your, your pipeline coverage ratio. It's just, you don't have time. You really don't. You don't. And you don't have time to, to, to be effective with all those in your pipeline if your pipeline is that fat. Um, and you probably don't have a sensitivity to how much you're actually investing to get those that five times. Um, oh, yes, but, you're right. You know, the, the sales operations uh, are sometimes siloed. They're oftentimes siloed. Sure. So what, what drifts over from the sales side over to the operations side or to the general P&L is my, my salaries and my compensation costs. And then my overall expenditures, uh, my overall revenues, rather. Right. So here, here's, here's how much money, here's, here's a sales number that I brought in, and here's how much it costs from a salary and, um, uh, and bonus travel, et cetera, standpoint. Um, and if it's a, it'll be a positive number and we as a company, we're happy with that. But what we don't realize is that the investment that I made in order to generate that was mm-hmm. beyond just my salaries. I had to engage the time of my marketing department. I had to engage the time of my, uh, my digital department. I had right. to get stuff printed. I had to, um, uh, and, and I, as a salesperson, I have a limited amount of time that I can invest. Um, you know, how many salespeople actually re- recognize uh, and feel frustration after a while because they've been pursuing and pursuing and pursuing and pursuing and they don't have a lot to show for it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why do we celebrate our wins so much? Why are we so excited and we ring bells when we close a deal? It's because on some level we realize how many deals we've been pursuing that we have not closed. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's... Uh, yeah, and thank God we finally closed one. Yeah, I'm working so hard. I'm working for hours and hours and hours and hours. Well, what if you could take the same amount of time that you're working, um, and instead of closing, you know, one deal out of five, you closed five deals out of ten, or two and a half deals out of five. 
Um, wouldn't it be better? So take a good hard look as a sales professional at, at where you're investing your time um, and, and decide if, you, if it's really worth it. But here's the thing companies don't do, by and large, don't do. And I was fortunate to work early in my career for a company that that uh, was doing defense work. So everybody in the company had to keep time cards about how they spent their time. And And so... I thought, well, huh, why don't we assign job numbers to our qualified opportunities in our pipeline? And let's track the hours across the organization that we're investing to win deals. So I knew exactly how many hours and the cost it took to close a deal, to close a certain amount of revenue. And this is, this is I think, as we're... You know, sales teams or sales leaders just don't get it. It's, it's to the point you made. It's, it's how much time do you have available as an organization and how much time are you investing to bring in X dollars of revenue? So I think productivity in sales is always talked about as being you know, a certain amount of activity, but it should be looked at just as we look at economic productivity. It's a rate of output per unit of investment. It's absolutely true, um, and absolutely true as well that that there are precious few organizations that actually measure it. Um, now, uh, we've had conversations with about fifty firms over the last three months on this very topic of: Are you measuring the ROI on your business development investment? Um, and there are maybe six of them yeah. that are actually doing it. Well, they, they calculate CAC on a gross basis, right? Let me just lump all these things. At the end of the year, we're going to lump all these things and divide by revenue, and that's our cost of acquisition. It's like, no. Mm-hmm. I was working with one company that, you know, they're celebrating this decent-sized deal they got, and when I looked at the detail, of, there's a detailed description of how many hours they spent in all the various departments to close this deal. Yeah, I told the CEO, you'll be able to close two of those this year. <laughs> you can't spend that much time to close a deal. So let's, let's analyze and say, what, what do we need to do better in what dimensions in order to become more effective? And yeah. it just sort of fell on deaf ears. And it's strange because isn't that what we all want? We, we, we want to make money. That's why we're in sales. Right. Um, but we also want to win. Um, I, I don't know why you're so happy losing 80% of the time. Why is that, why is that an okay thing? Why is anybody happy? Yeah. I mean, I, I like to sometimes put a sort of a, analogy of like quality control, right? I mean, if you were, if you're a sales leader and, and you're managing a team that's got a, let's say a 25% win rate, let's say you were the f- manager of a factory that was building a, a piece of equipment that only worked 25% of the time when it got delivered to a customer. How long would you hold your job? Not long at all. Now I'll give you another, another thing to keep you up at night. If you're that sales manager, have you analyzed of the 25% that you're winning, have you compared the quality and the value of that 25% that you won against the quality and the value of the 75% that you lost? And I don't mean on a, on a total basis, um, but are you looking at it in terms of, well, I won 25% of my opportunities. That's, that's, that's okay. Maybe it's above the industry average. But of those 25%, how many of them were ones you really, 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 really wanted? Mm-hmm. How many of them were the highest value? How many of them represented long-term growth opportunities? 
Or did you win a large number of the 25% on a purely transactional basis? You came in at the lowest price. Your timing was good. Um, factors that, that are okay, but when you compare them to some of the ones you lost, were you losing the big ones and winning the small ones? Mm-hmm. Are you losing the, the, the long-term relationships, uh, but you're winning the short-term uh, top, uh, top line opportunities? So there's a, there's a quality aspect to this that I think a, a, a too many sales leaders are not looking at as well. Uh, you know, I can I can hit a million dollars in sales a whole bunch of different ways, um, but there's only one way that's going to give me both the the, the earnings that I want and the long term relationships and the long term opportunity that I want, and those those are the high value ones with long term benefit. I don't think we we take a hard enough look at um, the outcomes that that get us there, nor the processes and behaviors that get us there. Yeah, and I would add on top of that, as for many companies, as the sales leaders have no understanding of the total capacity of the organization. Because until you really understand that this, this detailed level we've been talking about, about really how many, how many hours it takes to generate a certain amount of revenue based on tracking the time, you can go assign all the quotas in the world you want to people and we'll, you know, multiply, got 10 sellers, we'll give them all a million dollars, we'll... That's 10 million, we'll divide it by 70%, and that's the number for the year. It's like, that's not your capacity. Your capacity is based on what you've actually done to date. Mm-hmm. And that will dictate what you can do going forward. But if you don't know that, if you don't have, you have that, you have the ability to collect that data. There's not a will to collect that data, unfortunately, in many organizations because they're afraid to think the inconvenience the sellers to do that. And we can automate a lot of that data collection now. But unless you have that information, you really don't know what your capacity is. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you raise an, ex- an excellent point around the will to acquire that information. If we could do a show of hands among the listeners to how many of them are fully compliant with all the sales reporting um, requirements that currently exist within their company, um, I don't think you'd get a lot of hands going up. Right. Um, if you really want to get serious about measuring sales effectiveness on an ROI basis or on some quantitative basis, um, you need a high degree of compliance mm-hmm. in your data gathering, uh, which means that you as a sales leader need to emphasize the importance of this information and how it will help the sales professional be more effective and make more money as opposed to being another burden that right. they have to take on on a reporting basis. Right. I mean, it's a question I ask back when I was still doing consulting with, with sales organizations. You know, I'd ask a sales leader, the senior sales leader, or the CEO. I said, well, so on your average deal, you know, we sort of established what an average deal was. How many total hours of time are you investing from inception to closing on these deals? No idea. Across the board, no idea. Yep. And the next question, of course, is what would the value of knowing that be to you? <laughs> well, they don't understand the value of knowing it. That's, that's part of what you have to educate people on because when you have that data, that gives you some information to work with to say, well, what are the levers we can pull that will make a difference? Mm-hmm. In the absence you of know, that, I, I, I mentioned, like, 
more more sales training. Hmm. You know, Andy, I'm sorry that I stepped on you there. Um, I mentioned the the 50 or so companies that we've been talking to over the last few months right. um, about measuring ROI, and there are there are about half a dozen of them um, that actually are doing it. I don't think it's a coincidence that those half a dozen companies are also the most successful in their um, in their verticals. Mm-hmm. They are either their market leaders, uh, every single one of them, or they are fast risers, every right. single one of them. So the the possession of this information that these six companies have, that the other companies in their verticals do not have, is somehow well is definitely correlated with their success. Now, cause and effect. Don't want to. Right. I am implying that. I can't prove it yet. Right. But with more information, you can make better decisions. And those better decisions are likely to lead to better outcomes. So as a sales professional and as a leader of a sales organization, why would you not want that information? Yeah. And that data is not stage conversion rates. <laughs> no. <laughs> which, is, which is, you know, when people talk about we're data-driven, that's what they're talking about. Uh, no, we're talking about real data here. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I love what you're doing. Uh, this is, as you can tell, very passionate about this because this is, I think, is such a huge gaping hole in sales organizations is to really understand what they're investing in winning business, what, what it really takes to win a piece of business in terms of time and investment. And until you have that data, I said, you don't know the right levers to manipulate to change it. That's exactly right. And it, and added to that kind of where we started, which is why are you satisfied with a 20% win rate? Yeah. Don't get me started. <laughs> okay. Don't get me started. I mean, I, you know, I, I, you know, told you about, you know, win rates will be the inverse of your pipeline coverage requirements. Yeah. I gave a keynote at a conference for SaaS sales leaders and they all just sort of sat and looked at me with, you know, vacant eyes when I, I brought that up. It's like, Hey, this is important. I mean, think about that. You guys clearly hadn't thought about it. I mean, this is, this is, and the, the idea of increasing win rates is just, is a mystery to so many sales leaders. It's like, well, if I just put more stuff into the top of the funnel and keep it, you know, my conversion rates the same, I'll increase my revenue. And it's like, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. If your conversion rate is low and you still get more stuff in the top of the pipeline, then, you know, with a low conversion rate, you'll, you'll probably still continue to convert 10, 15, even 20%. Yeah. Um, because those 15 or 20% that you're converting, you're not converting them on the basis of strong relationships and um, long-term value. You're converting them on the basis of of just of just churn, you know, just pricing and, and like I said, and, and, and a little bit of luck. Um, it, it, it's, you know, it, anybody can get up to bat, you know, in the major leagues and hit 200. That's mm-hmm. not that hard to do. Um, and if you gave me 50 times at bat or, or 500 times at bat, I could still hit 200. Yeah. But, you know, to, to increase my win rates, it's got to be more than just more times at bat. Um, it's got to be other behavioral and structural and strategic changes that I made. Now, maybe that's too scary for sales leaders. Maybe it's, it's, it's too intimidating or too hard. Um, but if you're happy with where you are, you know, like they say, if you want to keep on getting what you're getting, keep on doing what you're doing. Um, yeah, well, that's right. As, 
Edward Deming said is, you know, every yeah. system is perfectly designed to get the outcome it gets. <laughs> no doubt about it. <laughs> so, all right. Well, Bob, well, thank you for stopping by. This has been fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I did as well, Andy. If people want to, uh, connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Well, um, you can uh, connect with us um, at our website, which is artemispartnership.com. Artemis is uh, the goddess of the hunt, and that is what we support our our clients in doing. Artemispartnership.com, and you can reach me directly at bob.wiesner, which is W-I-E-S-N-E-R, at artemispartnership.us. Perfect. Um, I look forward to hearing from um, from your listeners. All right. Well, Bob, thank you very much. My pleasure, Andy. Thank you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Bob Wiesner, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling.